Hello and welcome to episode 71, pay-per-view, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Bill Gates. This is in the Daily Mail. Bill Gates reveals he is spending billions of dollars building several factories to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. Bill Gates is absolutely at the heart of this whole situation and he needs to be called to account after all this is over to answer for his actions when the truth comes out as it will. As it already is to millions of people, the article says, Bill Gates is spending billions of dollars building factories to develop a vaccine against coronavirus. The Microsoft co-founder and philanthropic billionaire said seven vaccine makers have secured funding but admitted that mountains of cash may be lost before a cure is found. He revealed the mammoth investment on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah after answering questions about the virus that has paralysed the globe. It's so that we don't waste time in serially saying which vaccine works and then building the factory. The only thing that really lets us go back to completely normal life and feel good about sitting in stadiums with lots of other people is to create a vaccine and not just take care of our country take that vaccine out to the global population. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation confirmed they were exploring using funding to get the process of building vaccines moving. Many of the current vaccine approaches are novel and have never been scaled for a commercialised product, they said. Enhancements of global manufacturing capacity are clearly required given the population level scale at which a COVID-19 vaccine will need to be given. The foundation has already awarded $20 million to three institutions in the US and UK to fund clinical trials aiming to study the effectiveness of repurposed drugs in combating coronavirus. $20 million, the equivalent in pounds, for studying the effectiveness of repurposed drugs in combating coronavirus and all the money that's given for vaccines for a virus which has never been isolated and shown to exist. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funds virtually every element of the cult's agenda which I've laid out since February 2018 in pay-per-view. The recipients of the University of Washington, University of Oxford and La Jolla Institute for Immunology. These grants to leading institutions in their fields will advance our understanding of how existing drugs and antibodies can contribute to addressing the pandemic we're facing around the world, said the Foundation's Chief Executive Mark Sussman. Speaking to Fox News, Gates said the pandemic is a nightmare scenario, but that fewer Americans will die than the 240,000 predicted if the government changes the way it tests people. Well, that's like China, which is where we're told this virus alleged broke out from. And they dramatically quickly overcame the virus and are now going back to normal, or at least very close to normal anyway. How did that happen so quickly? Well, as Bill Gates said, if you change the way you test, although he didn't say it quite like this, of course, change the way you test and diagnose and record and report, then the numbers will change. Gates has pushed for a nationwide shutdown, limited domestic travel and administering more targeted testing to stop the overflow of patients and hospitals unable to cope with the surging numbers. Well, if we do the social distancing properly, we should be able to get out of this with the death number well short of that, Gates told Fox News. This is a nightmare scenario because human-to-human transmittal respiratory viruses can grow exponentially. And you know, if we had kept on going to work, travelling like we were, you know that curve would never bend until you had the majority of the people infected and then, and then a massive number seeking hospital care and lots and lots of deaths. Well, there's no evidence for human-to-human transmission of COVID-19, not least because it doesn't exist but there's no actual documented scientific evidence for human-to-human transmission. The US is predicted to see its worst day in the coronavirus outbreak 
in a while where more than 2,000 people are expected to die. Gates believes that by obtaining test results within 24 hours, the US will be able to quickly identify those an infected person has come into contact with so they can be isolated and slow the spread. While there are strict international travel restrictions, Gates focused on the importance of domestic boundaries too. Well, when you have finite resources, you need to allocate them to where there's the most need, Gates told host Chris Wallace. Certainly because people move around the country, we need we have to have the shutdown or else we'll have an exponential growth. It will spread back into other parts of the country. The outbreak was identified in Wuhan, China in November with the first case in the US in January. As early as February, before any lockdowns, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation donated $10 million to help fight the virus. Gates has criticised the government's delay in taking precautions and serious action after the outbreak. Between 2015 and 2020, less than 5% of what should have been done was done, Gates said. During the interview from Microsoft's Skype service, Gates admitted that he wakes up every morning thinking the pandemic is only the subject of his nightmares. Well, it's certainly a fabrication, and I don't think Gates has nightmares. I think he has dreams about this because of the way he can capitalise on it. The article continues, but he said compared to a disease like smallpox, COVID-19 is not the worst case. The 1% mortality rate when your system is not overloaded, if that was smallpox, that would be 30%, he explained. So this is super, super bad, but we will eventually get a vaccine. Even before then, if we do the right things, we'll be able to open up significant parts of the economy, he said. Once you're in the crisis, you're doing your best to deal with this. He added, I'm sure you know, once we get past this, we'll look back, understand what we could have done differently, and make sure that we're not letting it happen again, particularly because it could be even worse in terms of the fatality rate. Now then it gives a load of figures, and I talk about the way the figures are generated in episode 69. Well, people are dying on paper. The PCR test, which is useless anyway, and tests only for genetic material, not a virus, which has never been isolated, never been sequenced, characterised or visualised in a laboratory. No papers, scientific papers, have shown a genuine way that emerged, which shows the virus has been isolated and shown to exist. There's been no evidence for human-to-human transmission. And the methods of diagnosis and recording cause of death on death certificates is what is driving this pandemic, not actual people. It's a numbers game and a mind game. People are dying of what they've always died of. Hospitals are empty. In different countries, hospitals are empty. And regular appointments are being cancelled. Consultations are being cancelled. We're told to allow the staff to focus on COVID-19 patients, but hospitals are empty. And people are frightened of going because they're frightened of contracting a virus which has never been proven to exist. The real death toll remains to be seen because people are dying of cancer and other health problems while the hospitals are empty. While simultaneously the hospitals they would normally have been treated in, or at least seen in, are empty with staff choreographing the next dance video. As videos on YouTube, etc. have shown staff doing dancing videos. They've got nothing else to do sitting around strumming their fingers while the media tells us that they're war zone hospitals. And while all this is going on, Bill Gates in the background funding people and organisations that are behind this pandemic hoax and being invited onto the BBC, which he funds, by the way, being given an easy ride. Well, he would be if he funds the BBC and doubting his propaganda and his sales pitch for a vaccine. Bill Gates is the least trustworthy person in the world when it comes to anything to do with COVID-19 or pretty much anything he talks about because he will say whatever justifies further lockdown and a vaccine. People like Bill Gates need not only ignoring but jailing because of his record of crimes against humanity for which his role in COVID-19 is a classic example.
And the next subject this week is immunity. This is in the Telegraph. Many people may already have immunity to coronavirus, German study finds. Well, for reasons I explained in the previous episode, everyone has immunity because there is no COVID-19. But even going by the official idea that there is a virus, let's see what this article says. Many more people may have been infected with coronavirus and acquired immunity than previously thought, according to a groundbreaking study in Germany. Scientists studying the town at the epicentre of the country's first major outbreak said they had found antibodies to the virus in people who had shown no symptoms and were not previously thought to have been infected. Initial results released on Thursday suggest that as many as 15% of people in Gangel in Heinsberg district may already have immunity, three times as many as previous estimates. The findings suggest the mortality rate for the virus in Germany is just 0.37%, five times lower than current estimates. Again and again, the estimates are proven wrong, but it's the estimates that lead to the lockdowns. This means gradual relaxation of the lockdown is now possible, Professor Hendrik Streak, the virologist leading the study, told a press conference. Because the people in Germany have been so careful and disciplined, we are now able to move on to the second phase. But Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, dashed hopes of an early end to the lockdown, saying we must not be reckless now. We could very quickly destroy what we have achieved. We have not achieved anything because there is no virus. The study in Gangel was the first in Europe to research the effects of the virus on an entire community. The study in Gangel was the first in Europe to research the effects of the virus on an entire community. Scientists from the University of Bonn are testing around 1,000 people from 400 households for antibodies, as well as signs of current infection. Initial results based on around half the test found 2% of inhabitants are currently infected and 14% had antibodies to the virus. Allowing for overlap, that suggests 15% of people in the town now have immunity compared to the previous estimate of 5%. The 15% is not that far from the 60% we need for herd immunity, Professor Gunter Hartmann, another of the study's leaders said. With 60-70% herd immunity, the virus will completely disappear from the population. Then the elderly are no longer at risk. The elderly are no longer at risk. We need a lockdown to prevent to protect the elderly and prevent the elderly from catching the virus. The same elderly, not just in Britain but in America and possibly other places as well, that are being asked to sign do not resuscitate forms, some of them without even knowing what they're signing. And there's even been talk of, in Britain at least, of do we allow elderly people to die to make it easier for us to deal with other patients. These are the old people the lockdown was supposed to be called to protect. The figures cannot be extrapolated to the rest of Germany because Gangel had a high rate of infection, but the study's authors said they were grounds for cautious optimism. An immunity rate of 15% is already enough to slow the spread of the virus significantly, they said in a joint statement. The findings suggest the mortality rate of the virus may be lower than previously thought. The study found a mortality rate of 0.37% compared to Johns Hopkins University's current estimate for Germany of 1.98%. This is the Johns Hopkins University, which was involved in the event 201 simulation with Bill Gates and others long before coronavirus broke out, which simulated what would happen in the event of a coronavirus pandemic and what was estimated in that simulation has happened or is happening. The study's author said their findings could be closer to the real figure for the virus because they had detected so many previously unknown infections. 
The much lower mortality rate in Gangel is explained by the fact this study is detecting all infected people, including those with no symptoms or very mild illness, they said. Antibody testing for the virus is still in its early stages. Chinese scientists released a study confirming they had detected antibodies for the first time this week, but warned they were unable to detect any in some patients known to have been infected. Well, then how, how does that work then? How can you say this antibody test is reliable when people you know are infected, or at least officially they've been tested to be found to be infected, and that there's no antibodies? Well, you can explain that by the fact that they're not testing for a virus, they're testing for genetic material, which many, many people have. A virus, which as I explained in the last episode, has never been isolated in a laboratory, it's never been visualised, it's never been characterised. There was a paper just doing the rounds, especially among the disinfo merchants. Watch the disinformation. I mean, I've seen that over the years. People come out, make videos and stuff and say, this alternative media name or that alternative media name is a fraud. Look at this. Here's the evidence. And it's usually crap. But they've stepped up the quality in the face of coronavirus. If you're canny, you can take it apart. You can see through it. But there's a paper, and I'll link to a brilliant video of a doctor called Dr. Andrew Kaufman, who I mentioned in the previous episode, presentation he did where he takes apart all the papers that talk about in some way finding or testing for coronavirus in a laboratory. And I'll link to that because he talks about this particular paper and why it's a fraudulent paper. But it has, it seems, led to what has happened since, at least in part. But the reality is there's no scientific evidence whatsoever for the existence of COVID-19. The article continues. It is unclear how long any immunity to the virus conferred by previous infection will last, although experience with similar viruses suggests it will be in the range of a year to 18 months. I think the most important thing all governments can do to address the virus is to get reliable data. Professor Street, the study leader, told The Telegraph, we don't yet know enough about this virus. Well, that's not a surprise, is it, if it doesn't exist? The author said the findings were grounds to begin lifting the current general lockdown and move on to a phase of isolating the vulnerable groups most at risk. Isolating the vulnerable groups most at risk of a virus which itself has never been isolated in a laboratory. Jens Spahn, the German health minister, had earlier suggested an easing of the lockdown could be possible after Easter, saying, We are seeing a positive trend, but it must continue. If it does, we will be able to talk about a gradual return to normality about the Easter holidays. But Mrs Merkel appeared to play down hopes for an early easing of restrictions amid concerns people may be less disciplined about social distancing over the Easter holidays. I would like to be the first to tell you everything is as it was and we can go back to normal, but that's not how it is, she said. Well, actually it is. It never wasn't. Well, who are the people of Germany going to listen to? A virologist leading this study or the Chancellor? A professor virologist has said that... <laughs> A relapsing of the rules is now possible because the mortality rate has dropped to 0.37%. But Merkel basically ignores that and says to stay at home anyway. People are testing positive for the virus with no symptoms because the PCR test is testing for genetic material, not a virus. And lots of people have this genetic material, so lots of people test positive without symptoms because there's no evidence for a virus. Lots of people have very mild symptoms, we're told, but that was claimed in the wintertime when lots of people do have mild flu-like symptoms anyway. They said the virus might peak in the summer, but then a lot less people generally tend to have flu-like symptoms in summertime in the typical year. There is no COVID-19. It's a scam. Not one element of this COVID-19 story makes sense and stands up to scrutiny. That's why there's censorship of alternative opinion on the subject through Silicon Valley, internet 
giants of Silicon Valley. The same with transgender, climate change, migration. If you can't win the debate, they'll have the debate, censor the debate. And we're seeing that increasingly over COVID-19, which has never been proven to exist. Scientific paper after scientific paper after scientific paper claim to have isolated the virus, have not when you actually look at it. But they've all taken genetic material, which lots of people have in the body. So lots of people test positive and lots of people have recorded as dying COVID-19 after testing positive, which is not the same thing as dying of COVID-19. And the next subject this week is... Sweden. This is in the Daily Mail. Sweden records just 17 new deaths from coronavirus. <laughs> its lowest daily rise in a fortnight as new infections plummet to only 466 cases. Sweden has seen its lowest increase in the coronavirus death toll for almost a fortnight, with only 17 fatalities reported on Friday. The number of new cases also fell again to 466, following a two-day peak of 700-plus cases per day. The low figures come despite the country not enforcing a lockdown, piling pressure on the UK and other countries that did enact stricter measures to contain the virus. The totals announced at 2pm today are surprisingly low compared to the sharp increase Sweden have been experiencing during the week. The country's total number of cases now stands at 10,151 with 887 confirmed deaths. However, trends in the data released by the country's public health authority show that confirmed deaths and cases fall over the weekend before rising again because of what is believed to be a delay in reporting. The Stockholm and Sormland regions have been hit hardest by the pandemic. However, today people were seen enjoying the sunshine outside cafes and bars in the Swedish capital on the eve of Easter Sunday after officials did not enforce a shutdown. Figures like those seen in Sweden will likely be used to pressure governments which have resorted to lockdowns to battle COVID-19 to lift the draconian restrictions. Yesterday, the daily death toll and the numbers of new <laughs> coronavirus cases both fell. There were 77 new deaths, down from 106 on Thursday. The number of confirmed infections went up by 544, a drop of nearly a quarter from yesterday's near-record figure. 722. More than 4,000 of the country's 9,685 confirmed cases are in the Stockholm area, according to official figures. The government has also carried out random sampling, which suggests that as many as 2.5% of people in Stockholm have been infected. That implies a higher figure of around 60,000 in the Stockholm region, suggesting that many people have had the virus without being added to the official count. Unlike most of Europe, Sweden has not imposed a lockdown, and primary schools, shops, cafes, restaurants and bars remain open. People are not generally ordered to stay at home, although they are told to isolate at the first sign of slight cold-like symptoms. Not even flu-like symptoms, but cold-like symptoms. Swedes are advised to keep your distance at gyms and sports facilities rather than avoiding them altogether. There is a ban on gatherings of more than 50 people, two people in Britain, but the rule is far more generous than the limit of two that Britain and Germany have set. There we go. Finland has already moved to limit border crossings, fearing that the virus will spread from Sweden. The government in Stockholm has emphasised taking personal responsibility for public health, but most of its measures are not enforced. The lack of a lockdown makes Sweden an outlier, but the government has rejected Donald Trump's claims that the country is suffering more than others. Asked at a White House briefing on Tuesday what advice he would offer to leaders who were sceptical of social distancing measures, Trump replied, There aren't too many of them. They talk about Sweden, but Sweden is suffering very gravely. Swedish Foreign Minister Anna Linde pushed back against Trump's claim that Sweden was not doing enough. We are doing about the same things that many other countries are doing, but in a different way, Linda told broadcaster TV4. We trust that people take responsibility. I think they've got the right idea. 
Government epidemiologist Anders Tegnell said he did not believe Sweden was suffering any more than any other country. No, we don't share his opinion, he told reporters, referring to Trump. Of course we're suffering. Everybody in the world is suffering right now in a different way, he said. But Swedish healthcare, which I guess he alludes to, is taking care of this in a very good manner. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress on the personnel, and it's really a fight for them every day, but it's working. Prime Minister Stefan Lofven says that while most measures were not banned, he still expected all Swedes to comply. The advice from the authorities are not just little hints, he said. It is expected that we follow them every day, every minute. Well, Sweden is a perfect example that lockdowns are useless for everyone but those most at risk and the sick, even if we accept that COVID-19 exists. Locking down the healthy is not quarantine, it's house arrest. Billions of people around the world are under house arrest when the figures just don't add up compared to seasonal influenza deaths every year. And people just go about their lives in the flu season as they do the rest of the year. So why on earth are healthy people in lockdown now? doesn't make any sense when you look at the figures because it's a scam. Healthy people are not locked down during the flu season. So why are they locked down with COVID-19? Especially when you consider the fact that COVID-19 is not backed by any science whatsoever. And there's no reported laboratory confirmation in studies of human to human transmission. There's the claim that COVID-19 can be passed from person to person, just like there's the claim that COVID-19 can be contracted from a work surface or money when viruses need a living host to survive. So when they're outside the body, game over. But there's no tests or studies done to confirm human to human transmission. It's a numbers game and a mind game. And the final subject this week is life under lockdown. This is in the Daily Mail. It's easy to feel imprisoned under lockdown, so thank goodness for memoirs that transport us into the lives of others with tales as fantastical as any novel. Dominic Sambrick on the proof that life really is stranger and more magical than fiction. With so many of us now prisoners in our own homes, trapped inside the same four walls and sick of the same old view from the same old windows, it's tempting to brood about everything we're missing. Other people, obviously, not just friends and family, but colleagues, acquaintances, even strangers. Other places, long country walks and hillside hikes, sparkling scenes and rolling meadows. The thrill of adventure, the excitement of discovery, the pleasures of the exotic, the roar of the crown, the buzz of the city, the silence of the mountaintop. Never did we know how much we valued them until they were taken away. There is good news, though. Our finest minds have invented a device that allows you to experience all these things from the comfort of your living room. It is, of course... The book, according to surveys, the average Briton reads for about five hours a week, which works out as less than an hour a day. But half of that is fiction, which means that most of us read barely two hours worth of non-fiction a week. For some reason, perhaps because they had inept teachers at school or because they spend too much time reading reviews in The Guardian, many people dismiss non-fiction as earnest and worthy, which is to say, soul sapiently dull. And yes, some of it is, especially the preachy hand-wringing books hectoring you about the evils of the Western world. But thousands of non-fiction books are not like that at all. Turn the pages and you meet all kinds of weird and wonderful people. One moment you're wandering through an extraordinary new landscape, the next you're rethinking assumptions you've cherished for years, such as the power of the written word. If you doubt it, try dipping into something that seems perfectly suited to our current troubles. The Great Diary of the 17th Century, Civil Servant Samuel Pepys. One of the most absorbing and addictive books I've ever read. Pepys kept his diary for almost 10 years, charting the first decade of the Restoration. You get a sense of the tone from the early scene when Charles II returns across the Channel from exile in 1660. On Pepys's boat are not just various royalist bigwigs, but Charles's dog which disgraces itself by soiling the deck. This made us laugh, Pepys notes, before adding wisely that it made me think that King and all that belongs to him are but just as others are. Many of Pepys's belief would strike modern readers as very odd, yet often he seems just like us. 
He worries about his health, drinks too much and quarrels with his wife Elizabeth. Like us, he lived through a terrifying public health crisis. In 1665, the Great Plague came to London, killing an estimated 100,000 people, a quarter of the city's entire population. But the difference is that the plague was actually a real disease and this alleged virus has never been isolated, sequenced, characterised and visual, or visualised in a laboratory. And it's detected, apparently, by a test which does not test for COVID-19, but for genetic material, which can be in the body from a wide variety of different causes, and which many, many people have. Many people fled the city, which rapidly became deserted. Lord, how satisfied it is to see the streets empty of people, Peeps wrote, noting that two shops in three, if not more, were generally shut. But he came through it, working hard at the Admiralty after others had fled. He made more money than ever. I've never lived so merrily, besides that I never got so much, he wrote cheerfully, as I have done this plague time. Quite apart from its historical delights, Pepys' diary, like so much of the best non-fiction, takes you out of yourself, introducing you to people and places that have long since vanished. After reading Pepys, you don't need a time machine, you've been there, but you don't need to go back to Restoration England to find addictive stories. Recently I've been reading Simon Garfield's extraordinary compilations of ordinary people's diaries from the 1940s. We are at war and our hidden lives. After only a few sentences, you plunge right back into the sights and smells, the hopes and fears of Churchill's Britain, the ration books and gas masks, the tins of spam and air raid sirens. Then there were the great comic diarists of recent decades. If you enjoy reading about other people's misery, then the carry-on actor Kenneth Williams' diaries are often outrageously funny, not least for his astounding rudeness to the great British public, morons. That's in inverted commas, by the way, that's not me saying that. I also have a soft spot for novelist Kingsley Amos's bar of memoirs, which led him to fall out with many of his old friends. It's hard to pick a favourite moment, though his father's warnings that the dangers of masturbation come pretty close. I love his account of his rival Anthony Burgess, who told Amos he was on the lookout for a sword stick. If ever menaced by ruffians, Burgess said he planned to unsheath it while shouting, Fuck off, I've got cancer. This, he said confidently, would deter any muggers. Clever. As this might suggest, the best non-fiction is never dry. The best memoirs are as finely wrought and pointedly balanced as any novel. One of my favourite writers, for example, is V.S. Pritchett, a peerless craftsman of short stories, but Pritchett also wrote an exquisite memoir, A Cab at the Door, chronicling a shabby genteel childhood before World War I. It has some astoundingly funny set pieces about his bizarre relatives, such as great-uncle Arthur, who looked very yellow, kept nails between his teeth and had a horrible long black beard like a crinkled mat of pubic hair. Another of my favourite memoirists is Russian exile Vladimir Nabokov, best known for his blackly comic and controversial novel Lolita. But Nabokov also produced one of the most beautiful autobiographies ever written, Speak Memory, which brilliantly evokes the lost world of pre-revolution St. Petersburg. His mother, his brother, his English governesses, his eccentric drawing teachers. For a brief shiny moment, they all come back to life. Because Nabokov's memoir uses many of the same themes and devices as his novels, it makes you think about the difference between fact and fiction. Of course, booksellers rigidly divide their stock into fiction and non-fiction, but the reality is more complicated. As a historian of the 20th century, I'm fascinated by the books of the Nobel Prize winning writer Svetlana Alexievich, such as The Unwomanly Face of War, Chernobyl Prayer and Secondhand Time, even though they're often terribly harrowing. Told in dramatic monologues, they capture the Soviet experience from World War II to the fall of communism. They're based on interviews with ordinary people, so they're definitely not fiction. But Alexevich's techniques, her sense of balance and contrast, her changes of focus, her juxtaposition of different characters, even her use of little cliffhangers to keep you reading, are those of the finest novelist. The only difference is that her raw materials are drawn from real life. When you contemplate the vast range of non-fiction and the limitless possibilities of our experience of the world, it's tempting to wonder why novelists bother making things up. 
often apparently simple, mundane things, the kind of things you might never think of as the stuff of literature can make for memorable books. On the surface, Helen MacDonald's extraordinary memoir, Hatreds for Hawk, is simply a book about taming a wild bird, but it's also a book about loss and grief, humanity and nature, the kind of book you never forget. Who, meanwhile, could have predicted that late district sheep farming, as recounted in James Rubanks' The Shepherd's Life, would have such an appeal to thousands of readers moved by his tales of life and death, the soil and the seasons? Then there are those books which sound entirely unappealing on the surface, but stay with you forever. Some years ago, browsing idly in an airport bookshop, I picked up a book called Friday Night Lights about a high school American football team in impoverished West Texas. A New York journalist, H.G. Bissinger, moved his family to Texas to spend the 1988 season with a Permian high school team. As ideas go, it sounded mad, and since I don't follow American football, I don't know why I bothered flicking through it. But once I started reading, I couldn't stop. As weird and foreign as Texas high school football seemed, I learned more about ordinary Americans' dreams and anxieties from that book than from a thousand novels about whining New Yorkers. I'm a chair travel, you might call it. And in truth, even before coronavirus compelled me to spend more time with my towering part of unread books, I was already doing a lot of armchair travelling. In my mid-forties, I am increasingly unlikely to walk from the hook of Holland to the gates of Constantinople. Never mind. Patrick Lee Fermer did it in the early 1930s and wrote about it in his wonderful books, A Time of Gifts and Between the Woods and the Water. And in truth, I've had much more fun reading about his encounters with Austrian counts and Hungarian peasants than I would have done trudging along some German motorway. Then there's my favourite travel book of all, Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, a journey through what was then Yugoslavia just before World War II. It's the war and peace of non-fiction, a 1,100-page behemoth, crammed with weird characters, centuries-old grudges, historical ghosts, and as many mosaics, minarets, beards and blood feuds as you could possibly want. And once you start reading it, you won't mind being stuck at home, because modern life seems so pallid by comparison. But we don't just read to learn about the outside world. We also learn about ourselves, which is why so many people adore Bill Bryson's gentle, good-humoured notes from a small island. My friend Anna is obsessed with Kate Fox's Watching the English, which explains, among other things, why we talk about the weather, why we love apologising, why we are addicted to DIY, and why the difference between tea and dinner matters so much. It always strikes me as bizarre that some people think of reading as a solitary, even lonely activity. You're never alone with a book. For one thing, the writer is with you, so are the characters you meet along your literary journey. Tony Benn once said he didn't rate reading. What moves me? It isn't bloody books. Hardly ever read them. Because you can learn more from listening to ordinary people, by which he meant people who agreed with him. This has always struck me as foolish, and says a great deal about the poverty of his imagination. Who, after all, could fail to learn from George Orwell's homage to Catalonia, or Robert Graves' goodbye toward that, or Karen Blitzen's Out of Africa, or even Sir Ian Kershaw's titanic biography of Adolf Hitler. After all, only a fool thinks he knows everything. You will learn more from a book than from listening to people like yourself. And George Orwell's 1984 could have been added to that list, which is playing out before our eyes now more than ever. The article concludes. The point of reading is that you find yourself in situations and alongside people completely removed from your everyday experience. A good non-fiction book challenges the way you think and feel. Take one of the best-selling books of all time, The Diary of Anne Frank. I'm ashamed to say I had never read it until a few months ago, but now I think about it all the time, reflecting on the unfulfilled hopes and broken dreams of a teenage girl who died decades before I was born, and on the hatreds and prejudices that lurk within us all. Don't think it lurks within us all, but I see what he was trying to get at. A couple of weeks ago, I read another book that changed the way I thought. War of Reporter Christina Lamb's Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, a searing account of what war does to women, telling the stories of rape survivors from Nazi Germany to Syria. For too long they have been airbrushed out of history, but not anymore. 
I ought to end with a couple of jollier suggestions to raise a smile in these grim times. As a boy, I cried with laughter at the scene in Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat when he tries to transport some dementally overripe cheese from Liverpool to London to the horror of everybody he meets. It was first published in 1889, but it hasn't aged a bit. And a few years ago, my wife threatened to banish me from the house for allegedly howling at the autobiography of one of Britain's most celebrated TV presenters. I started laughing at the foreword and never stopped. The book in question was I, Partridge. We need to talk about Alan. That counts as not fiction, doesn't it? Well, with billions of people in the world in lockdown, reading is a much more worthwhile pastime than just being glued to technology the whole time, which many people will be during this time. I've talked before in episode 21 about technology's effect on the brain. Social media is causing mental health problems, especially for kids and young people, as I talk about in episode 35. And that has massive potential to increase with those kids and young people inside on their phones or tablets all day, every day. The lockdowns in general are already causing mental health and emotional issues for some people, healthy people. Imagination is activated by books because you have to imagine what you're reading as opposed to technology and social media, which only has a largely detrimental effect on perception and emotional and mental well-being. Books also encourage their readers to challenge their own perceptions with perspectives and information they might not have come across before. Books have controversial and conversation-provoking content, whereas social media increasingly censors content with algorithms and other means challenging the official narrative. Technology allows for instant historical and factual revision, whereas books, once in print, remain the same and preserve facts and information forever. Now, I'm not saying there's not some important things that technology allows us to do. Of course there is, like communication. And one of the benefits for the cult which runs the world which i talk about in episode 59 part 2 the cult the sabatine frankist cult which runs the world and their agenda which i've laid out since pay-per-view began in february 2018 is communication moving from person to person communication to person to person through technology talking of books i came across a book called what really makes you ill why everything you think you know about disease is wrong which actually makes the case that there's no evidence for viruses actually making people ill. Now, this would seem to be a ludicrous statement, but that's what's so great about books. They encourage you to challenge preconceived ideas and assumptions. I've only just started reading the book myself, so I can't, therefore, make any claims about its content, but it's a very interesting book. Books can change the world. That's not a throwaway statement. That's true. They can, as a book allows for controversial information and other perceptions outside of the official narrative to be circulated and researched and one thing people can do during lockdown as they've got the time now is researching information for themselves people say i don't have time to look at information i've got to live in the real world well they do have time now all the time in the world now not least information about covid19 beyond the official media and government same thing narrative journalists and pr people for the government line and the official line, and that's never been more clear than with the COVID-19 hysteria. But it's not clear if you don't do any research. Journalists are not questioning the figures or the science, alleged science. They're just repeating it because that's what they always do. Writer of this article, Dominic Sandbrook, is correct. Normal life is magical. And we're told there's a new normal and that we can't go back to normal life. But we can. Of course we can. Because normal life as we knew it before the COVID-19 scam, is just the communication of information away. Because people would demand normal life back were they to find out the COVID-19 is a scam. 
and just takes researching first beyond the official narrative and then sharing information to show that it's a scam. I recommend two videos by Dr. Andrew Kaufman to make a start, who's done some great work on COVID-19 called A Breakdown on Current Testing Procedures and the other one's called Rooster in the River of Rats. I talk about some of Kaufman's work in the previous episode and I link to the two videos in the description for the previous episode. We can change this situation and very, very quickly if enough people are prepared to take the time and effort to find and communicate information for themselves as opposed to sitting around being told what to think by the media and government like most people usually do anyway. I mean, most people, I wonder sometimes what they actually use their minds for. I can't see much use for it in some people. The brain, yeah, because the brain actually is what we need, but they both work together, but the mind is thoughts, it's perceptions, it's ideas. I mean, this could be a watershed moment in human history when humanity finally took their minds back and started to think and question for themselves, for them en masse, and opened their minds wide open to see that a scam as colossal as COVID-19 could actually be perpetrated through government, media, health organisations like the World Health Organisation, owned by Bill Gates, by the way, second biggest funder, and billionaires like Bill Gates, and that unless people start to take responsibility for their own perceptions, then this world is going to get very, very dark and sinister, to a point where people will be looking back at this time in the same way people are looking back at normal life now. Oh, I know there were problems, but it was a lot better then than it is now. That's what people are saying about normal life now. And if people don't take responsibility for their own perceptions, people are going to be saying that and meaning it even more about this time in the very near future. The choice lies with us. We have the power. We give away our power because we've persuaded the people we give away our power to have power. They don't. The power has always been with us. We just need to take it and our minds back and we'll be back to normal in no time. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.